Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Market Show, Thursday the 7th of July as we record. And so consequently, a very happy resignation day to you, listener, and indeed to my IC panel here. We've got Alex Newman, Mark Robinson, Julian Hoffman and Dave Baxter coming up, all hosted by Dan Jones as normal. Hello, Dan. What's coming up today? Hi, yeah. Thanks, John. We have got Robert Walters in our result of the week or trading update of the week uh, in this case. Then we're discussing this week's cover story, which is on our annual top 50 ETFs. And finally, we're going to look at some of the troubles facing Chrysalis Investments, uh, Investment Trust and illiquid slash unlisted assets in general. Lovely stuff. Well, before we get there, uh, a quick news roundup and one place to start, and it's not directly in our companies and markets remit maybe, but it would be remiss of us not to note that Boris Johnson is to resign as Tory leader following mounting pressure on a raft of cabinet resignations. He'll remain in number 10 until autumn while a new Conservative leader is chosen. Um, Neil Wilson commented that Sterling was uh, a smidge stronger on the news, but no uh, real other significant market movements as of yet uh, at time of recording. Elsewhere, according to Halifax, house average house prices have hit a fresh record in June despite worries the cost of living crisis would dampen demand. The average house price rose 1.8% to just under £295,000, the largest monthly increase since 2007. In companies' news, we've had a gloomy Sainsbury's update. The supermarket reported 4% decline in like-for-like sales, excluding fuel, over the 16 weeks to June 25th. Uh, CEO Simon Roberts admitted the pressure on budgets will only intensify over the remainder of the year. Trainline, on the other hand, saw shares jump over 20% on Wednesday after it boosted its sales outlook for next year. The company said American tourists were leading the recovery of the European rail sector. Pub Group Youngs also revealed booming sales. Revenue was up 40% for the first 13 weeks of its financial year. Delivery company DX has dodged expulsion from the London Stock Exchange, saying its long overdue audit for 2021 will be completed by the end of September. The company was suspended from AIM in January after failing to publish its annual results on time. And an M&A line to finish, Spirex Sarka has begun talks to buy French industrial heating group Volcanic for around £226 million. Plenty more companies' news to get your teeth into on the IC website and in the magazine as normal. But for now, back to you, Dan. Thank you, John. Yes, we, uh, as mentioned, we are starting with recruiters this week. Robert Walters had a trading update. Obviously, this is a, a keenly watched sector at the moment, not least because everyone is, is interested or perhaps slightly wary of what might be coming down the line for the UK economy. But as it stands, these companies have been doing pretty well. There are plenty of staff shortages around, uh, not only in, in Downing Street. So, Mark, you covered the uh, trading update and we've got a couple of uh, full year results from peers coming in a couple of weeks as well. What, what are your kind of what are yeah. your takeaways? I, w- I would say, looking at uh, Robert Walters' figures, the uh, the trouble is is that the the full impact of the current economic problems aren't uh, aren't evident. Um, it was a record second quarter for the recruiter as well, and the overall theme coming through the trading update was was largely positive. But as I said, the, the question really is just how long the disconnect between the levels of economic growth and and uh, job creation will last. 
I guess what we're talking about there, or the, the real worry, is uh, uh, stagflation. Of course, that's when we, we get a combination between low growth and price inflation through the economy. We, we, we're already seeing this to a, a certain degree. The unemployment rate, of course, is one of the, um, the most reliable lagging indicators. So if the, if the rate rose last month and the month before, it indicates the overall economy has been doing uh, poorly and, and will probably continue to do so. Uh, to take, try and take some uh, historical context where we are is it, is probably illuminating in a sense. And I, mean, I, I was thinking mainly of, of the nineteen seventies. It was uh, mainly the last time that I used to buy uh, music as well. But there was some sort of parallels. There was a high inflationary period there. You had, for whatever reason, government spending as a proportion of GDP. Uh, spiking not only in this country but also, uh, well, particularly in the U.S. as well. And there was one-off reasons for this. The Vietnam War springs to mind. You also had a situation where oil prices uh, nearly tripled. The real, the real sort of parallel is the number of external uh, economic shocks that we've had, both now and going back to that period as well. Uh, chief among them, the soar, soaring energy prices. Back to Robert Walters, of course, it was a very, it was a very good trading update, and uh, I think the company itself increased its headcount by about seven percent uh, to capitalise on the um, on the demand uh, for talent. I mean, it, it's such a strange labour market at the moment because we're seeing skills shortages across a range of sectors, but t- particularly in in tech sectors as well. And I guess one lesson that can be learned from the rec- recruiters over the last decade or so. It's those that have um, uh, that deal in specialisms and have also broadened their geographical uh, footprint, which have performed uh, better than peers. And Robert Walters certainly uh, falls into to that category. I, I, I just reiterate the point that I made before: we we're probably not seeing the impacts of the economic imbalances and uh, and subdued growth at the moment. We'll probably have to wait until towards the end of the year. Uh, whether this means that uh, the recruiters will be exposed, as they have been in the past, is difficult to say. Yeah, I know a lot of these groups do have you know big big investment plans, and the likes of Hayes have been investing for the last couple of years quite heavily as well. I suppose you know there is that disconnect, as you say. It has been a strange labour market for for years now, even pre-pandemic in the UK, where you know employment rates held up pretty well in, in the face of you know some stuttering growth at times. But right now, you look at some of the, these figures coming from Robert Walters, you know, pay increases of up to 25% in some white-collar roles. It's quite hard, despite, you know, tougher times coming down the track, it's quite hard to see that dissipating entirely. I think uh, the CPI peaked at about 13.5% at the beginning of uh, probably in 1980 as well. It took a while from those problems during the 1970s to fully leach through. It's um, watch this space, I'm afraid. I, I, one hopes, anyway, for the sake of the country, that uh, there has been a fundamental change in labour markets and they've become more resilient, perhaps as a result of increased globalisation. Who can say? But um, fingers crossed, and we'll come back to this in a few months, no doubt. I was going to say. I was going to say. I suppose what you know, if you were looking at the defensive qualities of recruiters, it's, you you could make the argument that they're not just pure reflections of aggregate employment in that they are able to pick specialties like you're referring to down there sort of white collar roles which are in demand and they can sort of pick and choose sort of duck and dive between whatever's hot at the you know at any given time and presumably aren't going after some of the 
the more cyclical hiring which which may now be rolling off so in that sense they might be a bit more insulated though obviously if they were hiring for you know crypto exchange roles over the last year that's probably um probably a tougher sell now yeah it's a good point and Hayes, i think it is pinning a lot of its its hopes on tech in particular presumably as you say not crypto but uh you know targeting these niches makes sense really robert waters did make the point uh, however that uh, they'd seen increased uh, activity across all of their categories as well temp and so on so um yeah it, it, i suppose it's interesting to think of some of the potential you know structural factors at play as well when you think of you know right now you've got more early retirers we've heard you've got maybe more people out with health reasons you've also got childcare of course is an increasing issue for a large part of the workforce where it's becoming a bit more of a political um uh, hot topic as well in terms of people not being able to afford to to come back to work so all these things are probably contributing to shortages in certainly in certain areas and we shouldn't forget also that more more and more firms have outsourced this particular activity as well mm. yeah i think some of the recruiters they are quite clean keen to play up that angle aren't they in terms of the complexity of hiring decisions um particularly i suppose if you have a balance of temporary and, and permanent staff and you know hr departments sometimes might struggle to to do that themselves but yes we shall see as you say we do have full year results from hayes and page group coming up next week so we will be keeping a close eye on them and reporting in the next couple of issues okay thank you for that mark we are going to move on to this week's cover story which is the top 50 etfs our annual feature once again funds editor dave baxter is in charge of the panel who are tasked with uh, looking at our list and making sure it's fit for purpose. Dave, what can you tell us, first of all, I suppose, about you know the structure of the list, just to, just to outline it for people who don't know. We've got a selection of core building blocks, core ETFs. Then we've got some, some more niche uh, offerings, satellite offerings on the side as well to complement them. I suppose the, the classic kind of basic first question is what, what does make a good ETF? What qualities are you looking for in, in some? Yeah, it's, it's, I suppose it's kind of, thankfully, much simpler than picking active funds. I imagine much simpler than stock picking in many cases. But it, it does come with complexities. So one of the key things is, you know, people talk about cost and ETFs do tend to be very cheap and you would like it to be cheap. So, for example, if you're, if you're going for a really mainstream fund like a FTSE 100 tracker, you don't really want to be paying more than, say, something like 0.1%. And the cheapest fund in that category in our list is 0.04%, so really kind of rock bottom prices. But you also, uh, if you can, you want a kind of large funds um, because that tends to bring decent liquidity, which will keep your kind of trading costs low. I mean, your overall cost of investing is, is lower. But perhaps an overlooked point is simply what you're tracking as well. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. Again, if you are focusing on, you know, what we've batched the, the core funds, so the S&P 500, the FTSE 100, even perhaps less closely watched areas like Europe and Japan, there are kind of well-known indices that you can track. But when we're looking at some of those more niche options and kind of satellite holdings, you know, you might be looking at things like um, we, we have a, a bunch of kind of factory ETFs focusing on value, minimum volatility. We have some interesting dividend ETFs. But in, in those categories, there are some really... Um, significant idiosyncrasies and particularly say in the dividend space there are choices to be made over the kind of the the approach you back and you know what kind of trade-offs you're you're effectively taking with that choice 
I think that's quite a feature of the list this year, isn't it? Some of the discussion, a bit more detail of the, those trade-offs and considerations, mm. things to look at. Because it's not as simple as, you know, saying, right, I'll choose, uh, you know, one S&P tracker, one FTSE tracker, and then two or three others. You know, it's not a, a countdown style, two <laughs> from the top and three others. Um, but, you know, the, this has been, a, a, you know, quite a dramatic year for markets, dramatic 12-month period. Um, so I think it's also... I, Important to reflect on, you know, what's worked, what hasn't, have ETFs shown their worth, how people might be thinking about these things now in a slightly different context, you know, in a, certainly in a falling market context nowadays. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of see that, that change, maybe that, you know, interest in particular niches evolving or, or also how do you sort of see people reconsidering perhaps what they, what they want from ETFs and, and what they can expect from them? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. I guess we... Um... We try to, uh, within the list, there is, because they're so broad, ETFs sort of can be, and they cover a lot of areas very well, we can accommodate for quite a lot of different um, niches and particular situations and preferences. So I guess kind of, um, yeah, we, we, have, we have a few um, kind of different things we've been trying to do. So we've been trying to accommodate in the last even a couple of years ago for um, some concerns about inflation and rising rates and that kind of thing. So we have some more um, perhaps defensive bond funds. We have, um, I mentioned kind of factors, we have some value funds that have kind of held up, if not fantastically, they've held up better than kind of other um, parts of the market. But I suppose, um, yeah, it's interesting if people are kind of considering things now. I mean, you don't really want to be selling out of a, a falling position, you know, classic behavioral uh, risks there. But there, there are parts of the list that have um, targeted really in vogue areas in the past, whether it's kind of thematics or whether it's, you know, we have a, a NASDAQ 100 ETF in there, which has, you know, suffered a huge paper loss in the last six months to, to a year. Um, but I guess it just, it all comes down again to those kind of um, unglamorous but useful portfolio construction ideas of kind of getting your your base exposures and then you've got some um diversification there whether it's kind of across equities or equities and a bit of bonds and then like i said those more niche positions there are just there are a lot of idiosyncrasies that you kind of you just need to be aware of in terms of how your um performance is going to be affected so just to turn back briefly to the value etfs they have done well but um they do have kind of characteristics that um, potentially hold back how well they, they could do. Um, they tend to stay kind of relatively neutral with the underlying index in terms of their sector weightings. And that means that they can't suddenly go, oh, energy is shooting the lights out. We're suddenly going to have a 40% weighting in energy. So instead, they stay much more balanced and they're not going to um, give you those kind of really niche, massive gains that something like a sector fund would. But then equally, you're not taking as much risk. Dave, I was just had a question on the um, uh, on just to return to price as well, which you which you alluded to, and obviously yeah. it's the, one of the, the chief reasons people buy into ETFs. We we kind of previewed one of the picks um, in last week's ideas section with um, Alex Hamer wrote the the gold wrote up the gold fund, which um, you've you've selected this week, and I noticed their fees have steadily come down over the last few years is that a theme i know that's a very long-term theme in that yep. fee compression is just you know presumably it's it's only heading in one direction has that been noticeable in the in the year-to-year comparison you've made 
this year? Yes and no. So in in the you mentioned the um, the Invesco Physical yeah. Gold ETC, the gold fund providers have been in this huge um, price war in recent years, and we mentioned that. Um, let me try and draw it up. If you uh, if you look at the prices of of that fund, that fund's been the list for several years. It's always been this kind of price war with arrivals our share funds that is, mm-hmm. is also very liquid, also kind of very competitive on fees. Um, and they've always been trying to undercut each other. But I, I looked back over something like three or four different years of the list and every single time it has come down. So in certain areas, yes, you are seeing that fee compression. But what's actually interesting, at least within our list, is, um, you know, sometimes in, with this list in the past, in, you know, course of several years, you've seen some major overhauls and that's sometimes been because of lots of fee wars. But in our list this year, you haven't really seen much of that. You've only seen two or three instances where fees have come down. Mm. So I suppose perhaps, I mean, this is only kind of a, a small subsection of funds, but perhaps you are getting to a point where um, with the kind of more mainstream funds, like I said, they are now really cheap. So perhaps there's less room for that to come down. And what's interesting on the other end of the scale, you have very specialist funds like thematic funds, and then you have, for example, we have um, some quite niche plays like you have a a Japanese small cap fund. They tend to still look fairly, yeah, relatively expensive for Mm. ETFs. And that's because you're not seeing the competition there because because it's quite niche. Yeah. So, yeah, perhaps for now it has slowed down, but you would... Equally, you might expect over time things like ESG and thematics as you get more providers trying to capitalize on Mm. demand for that, as long as market rotations don't completely trash that demand. You know, hopefully you should again see another another wave of price competition over time. Yeah, I think the the idea of the the piece in general, isn't it, is to give people the the optional, the best option in each area. So, you know, of course. Uh, you know, you can put together an entirely ETF-based portfolio. I imagine most our readers would use them as complements to active uh, funds or individual shares, of course. And 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 this really gives you, uh, you know, a list of choices from each area, imperfect as they occasionally may be, uh, as areas for uh, for selection. But it's a, I think, really a valuable, uh, a valuable tool and a reference point for people to have. So so yeah, do look out for that this week in the. Uh, in the issue, um, let's shift now from building blocks to something a little bit more complicated, which is uh, unlisted, unquoted assets, if you will, uh, specifically in the news at the moment due to the travails of uh, Chrysalis Investments, the investment trust, which uh, has been a very popular play, but has really, uh, really struggled to say the least in the past few months. Um, this is an investment trust managed by Jupiter managers nowadays. It was Merion. Of course, Jupiter then acquired Merion. And, you know, it's, it's quite a common story. It's in many ways a microcosm, I think, of what we've seen in, in markets in general over the past few months insofar as these, these really elevated valuations, even for private assets, have started to be brought back down to earth and have come back down to earth very quickly in some cases. And that has caused quite a lot of pain for the holders uh, Julian, our deputy company's editor, has been following this closely over the past few weeks, and you, you've written on this in the magazine this week, Julian. Uh, do you want to sort of talk us through a little bit about, you know, Chrysalis and uh, what's happened there of late? 
Yeah, thank you, Dan. Yes, it's it's a slightly convoluted story, but over the last few months, there's been um, some concerns over how how fund managers have been putting assets into uh, unlisted entities or via listed entities, if that makes any sense. So Chrysalis was a specialist uh, fund manager that had a lot of private companies in its portfolio, including things like Klarna, uh, the sort of buy now, pay, pay later specialist, uh, Starling Bank, um, relatively quite well-known brands, as it were. But the interesting part of the story, I suppose, was the dependency of Jupiter Fund Management on Chrysalis, um, which is something I hadn't picked up on before particularly, but I'm sure Dave uh, uh, Baxter will have uh, covered the story in more depth. But um, it seems like um, yeah, Chrysalis was providing a, quite a large proportion of Jupiter's per valorum fees. Uh, otherwise, the, the, the sort of fees for performance that the fund manager was earning. And it, you know, if you look at the, the annual report, uh, you know, Chrysalis has mentioned 25 times just in Jupiter's annual report. So it's, it, it seemed a very high level of dependency given the relative size of the two entities. But the whole, the whole background to this really is that Jupiter itself is going through a, a, a period of great instability. So they've just changed the, the chief executive who decided to retire at the age of 51. Uh, he said he was going to spend more time on the beach, I believe, was the quote. Um, and they've brought in uh, the chief investment officer, a guy called Matt Beasley, to uh, replace him. And uh, it seems to me like he has a great deal to do in order to rebuild that position there at Jupiter. And uh, it's going to take quite a lot of work, I think. And the, the, the jury is out on whether that ultimately will involve a sale of the company or uh, you know, a major reorganization at the very least, I would have thought um, would be the minimum that the market would expect uh, in this case. But it's, it, it is a cautionary tale. Uh, yeah, we have been here before in the industry. It's, you know, the Woodford funds all, all end up in, you know, there was a lot of controversy around the use of un, unlisted, un, private assets in those funds. Um, and it seems to be that sometimes the temptation to, to take the easy performance win is too great. <laughs> uh, to uh to to resist and um you know that's why these things tend to sort of repeat but um but no it's it's a very interesting a very sort of in-depth story but um uh we get we will see what happens with jupiter over the next few months yeah i i think yeah jupiter you know the the sale uh rumors have been there for for a while and not uh unsurprisingly given it has suffered outflows for for several years now and uh you know is is ostensibly a strong brand but uh they keep waiting for that bid to come, and it hasn't yet. So, so we'll see there. But I think you're right about the the private assets as well. I mean, this is an area I covered a bit uh, in the past, and and you know, even when the the Woodford, uh, you know, Woodford uh, issues with um, patient capital trust, notwithstanding, you know, this has been an area which a lot of asset managers have really tried to um, get involved in the past few years. You know, uh, from the likes of Scottish Mortgage down, you know, talking about you know private markets as we've all been told and all heard so much about you know that's where a lot of the value is you know companies are coming to market later so you really need to access these illiquid assets to um to make many of the gains and, and the chrysalis trust is quite a late stage uh investor in that front it's not uh, a venture capital you know early business these are businesses which uh in theory and in practice in some cases do then ipo and realize some of those gains uh the problem here twofold i suppose from a reputational point of view the problem was that the performance fee was granted in around i think october last year on chrysalis which 
was obviously very high, right at the top of the market. A lot of that went to Jupiter. Since then, things have gone horribly wrong. A lot of the valuations come crashing down. Um, and yeah, there's a reputational issue. There's also, I think it's fair to say, you know, an issue with those private assets and, and how, how they're managed, really, and how one or how a fund manager does rely on those in, in their portfolios. If, if you think of a situation where, not just in terms of taking the performance fee, but in terms of these late stage companies, you know, Klarna's valuation went up to about 45 billion in, you know, a matter of years. That's being, that's based on these big backers, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Chrysalis was very happy to ride that wave and see Klarna account for a bigger and bigger part of its portfolio. Uh, only for, you know, when, when the tide has gone out, that valuation has been slashed. I think suggestions are the latest fundraising might be at 6.5 million. So, you know, barely a tenth of what it was just six months ago. And that's obviously going to have big repercussions when you've let it become 15% of your portfolio. Dave, I know you've looked at this as well. It's interesting just you, you mentioned the, uh, the position sizes. You know, as you say, they, they've had big stakes or big exposures to Klarna and to Starling Bank. And that's perhaps a slightly unwieldy um, portfolio. And that kind of fascinates me because, um, you know, as, as we were actually discussing earlier, when if you're looking at earlier stage investing, then there is that argument about asymmetry that um, you might have a lot of losers, but then you'll have some big winners. And hopefully you run those winners hard and you keep running and then that kind of drives your performance. Um, so it's interesting to, I guess, kind of ask about whether those portfolios should be less concentrated in a more mature part of the market. What's interesting is if you, you know, um, Chrysalis sits in a sect called growth capital, which I suppose broadly refers to that, what you're talking about, kind of companies that would maybe hope to have an IPO a few years down the line and are more of a mature private company. But if you look at, I was looking at some of the other trusts that sit in that sector. So you have the notoriously, you have the ex-patient capital trust, and that's equally quite unwieldy, has really massive exposure to um, Oxford Nanopore. And then equally, um, perhaps isn't a like-for-like comparison, but, you know, Seraphim Space, a relatively new entrant to the market, that again actually has a really big position in in its its biggest holdings. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether that kind of very concentrated style does make sense, even in that mature part of the space, or whether there is just too much doubling down on kind of those most exciting stories and then they just kind of let it let it run away from them but um maybe that's kind of one lesson well they're almost predicated on being ipo'd i think that's the where they tend to go wrong is that uh, as soon as the market turns you are then stuck with illiquid assets on the on the um, investment balance sheet and um you can't other than sell the trust shares, you you can't get out of them. So it's uh, it's it's why they're they're now trading at such a huge discount to asset to net asset value, and the, the people have just given up on. It. And they've also been actively shorted. I think that's the other thing that that they've run into. The other issue they've run into that uh, people have seen seen these big big positions and 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 taken active um, short positions against it. So yeah, so in the end, you know, Jupiter gets battered from from all sides really. But um, yeah. I mean, in a sense, it can't it can't get any worse. I mean, you know, the, the new guy has to come in and clean it up, and they'll either you know, fatten the business up or sell it. I think that will be the the next thing we see from them. Yeah, well, I think with Chrysalis, to me, part of the risk is that it the the way you know the Mark II market or the Mark II um uh to to whatever you want to call it is a it could get worse insofar as 
that big Klarna fall hasn't been realised yet in, in the uh, the portfolio valuation. You know, they they came out with one a couple of weeks ago, which has prompted some of the latest sell off. But that was still valuing Klarna, which is about you know fifteen twenty percent of assets, or it was still valuing that at about thirty billion. So they said there'll be more uh, <laughs> markdowns to come, and there certainly will be if it's marked at. 6.5 billion in three months' time. So, you know, you've got to make sure if you're invested in that trust, you're aware of the, uh, the delay there as well. You know, it's all very well being in something that isn't traded and isn't subject to daily volatility, but that volatility can come through all at once on those updates. And if you're not careful, Alex, Alex I know you, um, you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about that, that VC mindset and, and mm. you know, which again is slightly different from Chrysalis, you know, the, the buy 10 and one will, one will pay off. But, you know, the, the, I think we can stand by those, those opinions. There are still things to learn yeah. from that kind of mindset. But it, it, this is, you know, a cautionary tale on the other side. Yeah, totally. And you look at, um, I was just looking at the other two mentions we, we've made of uh, Jupiter Fund Management this, in, in this issue. One is in the, in the Ideas Farm. They're one of uh, several companies which have just hit a, another 52-week low. And in the, the No Thought portfolio, they are one of the top 10 or top 20 rather, uh, highest dividend yielders. Um, so obviously, they, you know, so another way of saying that their valuation is completely bombed out. I mean, in fairness to them, they, you know, mid-market fund managers, they have to have some, have some, have some differentiation and story to tell. And, you know, I mean, all asset managers, as, as Julian has obviously no, no doubt, you know, has been following in the, in the last few weeks and written about a lot, um, have have suffered but some are going to suffer you know more in periods of extreme sell-offs and and when the funds that they've that they've benefited from very recently have um suffered so badly so yeah i mean it's not a strategy just to say we've got to do something but um that is the legacy that they've been left with um and it's not easy to see necessarily where they go from here um the new misnote um just got it in front of me reacting to the the change in ceo um said they don't envisage any significant change to the group strategy or outlook as a result of, of matthew beasley coming in i mean they're they're corporate broker so you'd hope they would have some insight into that but it's not necessarily that inspiring a a comment really yeah i mean i i, I don't know where you'd go from here if you're a jupiter fund manager fund management uh, investor yeah, it's difficult when, as you say, if those funds are in outflows, as with all asset managers, you know, until those inflows return, the sentiment isn't going to return. And how do you get those inflows to return? You know, yeah. good management, good distribution, but, you know, yeah. easier said than done. You uh, might be just better off buying, a, you know, a leveraged long index <laughs> tracker fund. I don't know if we, we probably aren't recommending any of those in, in the ETF. Not right now, no. no, no. <laughs> On which note, we have reached the end of uh, this week's po- this week's podcast. Uh, so thank you to uh, to Alex, to Mark, to Dave, and to Julian, and thank you to you for listening. As ever, we'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.